Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, we'll be reading verses 1 through 4 and beginning our series through the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, we'll be considering the authorized version. Give attention to God's holy word. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you have spoken to men about the way of salvation. We pray now, O Lord, that through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, you would speak to us once again through the ordinance of preaching, and we ask that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us in this assembly, that we might see and know and perceive the things that make for our salvation. We ask all of this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Many are familiar, I trust, with John Calvin, and if you don't know who John Calvin is, he was one of the fathers of the Reformation. John Calvin did very important work after Martin Luther and the initial reformers rediscovered the gospel, and John Calvin's work mainly was to bring together the truths of Scripture into a system of doctrine. His most famous work accomplishing this task is his Institutes of the Christian Religion. Calvin's Institutes uh, set the tone for Reformed theology even up to this day. Now, what most people read when they read Calvin's Institutes is the 1559 edition. This is the final edition that Calvin wrote, but what many don't realize is that when you read Calvin's Institutes, he went through several versions of the Institutes. There was a 1536 version, a 1539 version, a 1543 version, a 1545 version, a 1550 version, a 1553 and a 1554 version. Calvin went through several versions of his institutes before he came to the final edition, the authorized version of Calvin's thoughts. Now, if any of you have done any type of scholarship, you do any kind of reading, you'll know that if you want to understand an author's perspective, it's only fair to read his latest work. 
It would be wrong to go back to the 1536 version of Calvin's Institutes and say, this is what Calvin thought. You have to go to his final version to learn about his mature thought. This is something we practice in scholarship all the time. And this is something that happens in uh, our conversations with one another. You may have a conversation with somebody five years ago, and they say one thing, and if you still think they think that way without talking to them today, you're not being quite fair with them, are you? Likewise, God's revelation has gone through several versions. As God has revealed himself to man, he has done it in various ways. He's done it at various times. And if we grant a human author the kindness of looking at his final version, how much more ought we to grant that to God? In order to know his mind, we have to look at God's final authorized version of his own will. And we have that in the person and work of his son. Now, there's one important difference between God and John Calvin. There's many differences, but for the sake of this illustration, there's one critical difference. Calvin went through several versions because he was learning and maturing. He was going through development, and his thought matured and expanded as he himself grew in the knowledge of Christ. With God, of course, that is not the case. God's knowledge does not increase or decrease. God's knowledge does not start as immature and then advance to a more mature state. God is perfect, and he never changes. He declares the end from the beginning. There is no change in God. So we might ask the question, why did God reveal himself to us in several different versions? Well, it's because of our weakness. It's because of our limitations. God adapted his revelation to us and to the condition of humanity, and over time he revealed more and more of his will. The essential elements of God's revelation have stayed the same throughout. If you read Calvin's Institutes, the essential doctrines are all the same. He doesn't change any of the fundamentals. Likewise, in God's revelation to us, the essence of what God is doing doesn't change. Because God and who he is doesn't change. From beginning to end, the thing that man needs is deliverance from sin and reconciliation to his creator. That's the same from Genesis to Revelation. The essential elements stay the same, and the way in which we are saved has always been the same. It has always been through a mediator. God's revelation to man has always been salvation from sin through a mediator and reconciliation with him. What has changed, however, is the way in which God reveals that. It's the manner and the ordinances that God has changed over the ages until the person and work 
of Christ. What we're going to see in this passage is that in revealing his will to man, God has given us his final authorized version in the person and work of Christ. In revealing his will to us, God has given us his final authorized version in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this passage, we're only going to notice, we're going to notice three things in this passage. First is a comparison with Christ, verses 1 and 2. And then the person and work of Christ, verse 3. And then the condition of Christ currently in verse 4. Verses 1 and 2 is a comparison with Christ. Verse 3 is the person and work of Christ. And then in verse 4 is the condition of Christ currently. But before we get into this passage, we need to set the table, as it were, for the book of Hebrews as a whole. You know, after we finished the book of Genesis, I think for, for myself and perhaps for this congregation, some of the ways that I was preaching through the book of Genesis seemed a bit odd to some. It, it seemed a bit uh, sort of off-kilter, perhaps, because perhaps you had not heard Genesis preached in the way that I had preached it before. And so, as I was meditating and praying over this, where should we go next after the book of Genesis? Exodus is the logical next step. However, I thought it good to look at the book of Hebrews, because one of the things you're going to find in the book of Hebrews is the way that the New Testament reads the Old Testament. The book of Hebrews is one of the best examples of how New Testament Christians, apostles, uh, the New Testament ministry, looks at the Old Testament and how it interprets the Old Testament. And quite frankly, the way they interpret the Old Testament is that it's all about Christ. Now, This doesn't always jive. This doesn't always go along with what we expect. We expect a grammatical, historical interpretation. Not downplaying grammar and history. That's very important. You have to know that to be able to read competently. But what you're going to find in the book of Hebrews is that the Bible, because it is the revelation of God's will, requires you to interpret it at a higher level than just grammar and history. Grammar and history is sufficient for Calvin's institutes. But the Bible is far higher than Calvin's institutes. And so the Bible requires us to interpret it according to the purpose of the author who gave it. So that's why we're looking at the book of Hebrews, because I want to help us, myself and yourself, understand the Scriptures better, understand how the Scriptures center on the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ from beginning to end. We need to make a few comments about the book of Hebrews as well, as it relates to the authorship, uh, I'm sorry, the, the purpose of the book as a whole. Just as the entire book of Scripture is best understood as what the main point is. Once you know the main point of the whole book, then you can profit from all the details. Likewise, in the book of Hebrews, it's going to be important for us to understand the purpose of the book as a whole so that we can appreciate the details. 
And quite simply, the purpose of the book of Hebrews is to exhort Christians to patiently endure by maturing in the religion of Christ through union and communion with God through the mediation of Christ in the context of God's appointed worship. I'll say that again because I know that was a mouthful. The purpose of Hebrews is to exhort Christians to patiently endure by maturing in the religion of Christ through union and communion with God through the mediation of Christ in the context of God's appointed worship. This is the purpose of the book of Hebrews. Several passages of the book of Hebrews that illustrate this for us. No need to turn there, but I'm going to move through several passages in the letter to support what I've just said is the purpose of this book. Chapter 2, verse 1, you can follow along if you would like. No need to. Chapter 2, verse 1, the the author says, Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. Chapter 3, verse 1, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus Christ. Chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, since a promise remains of us entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to come short of it. Chapter 4, verse 11. Let us be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. Chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, etc. Chapter 6, verse 11. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope to the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Chapter 8, verse 1. Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Chapter 9, verse 14. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Chapter 10, verses 19 through 22. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiness by the blood of Jesus. That's worship entering the holiest by the blood of Jesus, having boldness by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Chapter 11, verse 6, but without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight 
and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And finally, chapter 12, verse 12. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. And so the purpose of the book of Hebrews is to exhort us to endure patiently. But it's critical to notice the way in which we are exhorted to endure. We are exhorted to endure by looking to Christ in faith and through Christ by faith drawing near to God. That is how Christians endure. And that is what the book of Hebrews is given to encourage us in and to inform us in. We need to also make a comment about the authorship of this letter. This is a hotly debated topic. In the Westminster Confession of Faith, at least yeah, the version that, that we use in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, you'll find the list of Scripture, and you'll find the epistles of Paul the Apostle stop at Philemon. And then it's simply called the Epistle of Hebrews. In the ancient church, if you have the King James Version of your Bible, the King James Version probably says the Epistle of Paul the Apostle to the Hebrews. So there's a, there's a debate over whether or not Paul wrote this letter. I think it probably was Paul the Apostle. Some of the reasons for that is in chapter 10, verse 34, where the author says, you had compassion on me in my chains. That's a very Pauline expression. You, you were compassionate upon me when I was in chains. Finally, in chapter 13, verse uh, 23 through 25, the author says, know that our brother Timothy has been set free with whom I shall see you if he comes shortly. Greet all those who rule over you and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. Grace be with you all. Amen. There's a mention of Timothy, which we know was a close associate of Paul's. And also, the way this letter concludes is very Pauline. Simply, grace be with you. Amen. That's a very Pauline way of closing his letters. However, the letter itself doesn't say anything about who wrote it. Most all of Paul's letters say, Paul the Apostle, to the church in Corinth, or to the church in Ephesus. This letter doesn't have that. Therefore, I'm not going to try and convince you that Paul wrote this letter. It's not that important who wrote this thing. And I want to share with you some of the comments that John Owen makes about this letter. Listen carefully to what John Owen says. He's speaking about canonicity, and this is why authorship is important for the letters, uh, the books of the Bible. If we know who wrote it, if it was an apostle or a prophet, it makes it that much easier to be part of the canon. Peter wrote it. Peter's an apostle. It's scripture. Paul wrote it. Paul's an apostle. It's scripture. What do you do with books like this? John Owen says, wherefore, it is confessed that when the author of any writing is certainly known much light into its authority and relation to the canon of Scripture may be received. But when this is doubtful, nothing satisfactory can be concluded on either side, meaning it should be part of the canon or it shouldn't. If you don't know the author, 
You can't make a decision based on that alone. But then he has this to say, and I want you to pay attention. And therefore, it hath pleased the Holy Ghost to keep the names of the penmen of many parts of Scripture in everlasting obscurity. For he borrows no authority unto anything that proceeds from himself from the names of the men. What John Owen is saying is that the ultimate author of Scripture is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who moved holy men to write what we have in the Bible. And what John Owen is saying is that when you don't have the names of the authors, that doesn't matter for the authority of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does not receive any more validation for the truth of his word from the names of men. So there's an important lesson for us as we go through this letter and as we look at it at the beginning. Holy Scripture is written by the Holy Spirit. Holy Scripture is written by the Holy Spirit. The human authors are secondary. The human authors are not primary when you're studying the Scriptures. Now, this often gets turned upside down today, doesn't it? Think about some of the hottest debates in the church right now. Those debates have to do with men and women, human sexuality. And when you quote a passage from a certain apostle, what often is the response? Well, that was Paul's opinion. That was Peter's opinion. There are some who have gone so far, some of the liberal churches have gone so far as to say that Peter, when he wrote about husbands and wives, was in a patriarchal context in first century Rome. And that context is why he wrote what he wrote. But we don't really need to pay attention to that because that was Peter's context. That's what Peter thought. You see how this gets turned upside down? They make the human author primary, and then you don't have to listen to it. But I trust we've been better trained and that you're ready to be reminded. The Holy Spirit is the author of the Holy Scriptures. So when you read the Holy Scriptures, you are reading the words of God through the prophets. You're reading the words of God through the apostles. You're reading the words of the living God given to you for your salvation, and you can build your faith on this, the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. So remember this as you read. Remember this when you go to the scriptures. Remember this when you sit under preaching. We are not dealing with the words of men. We're dealing with the words of the living God. One final comment before we get into the details of this passage. This book was written to believing Jews, Jews who had confessed the Lord Jesus Christ. But in the first century church, there was a big debate going on in their day. It wasn't over men and women and sexuality. It was over whether or not Gentiles should be forced to observe the laws of Moses as far as diet, circumcision, dress, and all of the ceremonial laws. And you can sympathize with the Jews of this day. Remember, these believing Jews were for the most part like Peter. 
raised up in the covenant. They were taught, this is what God has said. This is what God wants us to do. This is the way of piety. And before Christ came, that was accurate. A faithful believing Jew was circumcised. He went to the temple. He ate certain foods and refused to eat other foods. That was the way of righteousness. But when Christ comes, these Jews have a hard time letting go. Letting go of these old practices. Letting go of what Moses had told them. And so what the author of Hebrews is going to do is he's going to remind them, yes, God spoke through Moses, but he now speaks to us finally and authoritatively through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you would follow God's ways, you need to listen to the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is the audience that the author is writing to, and this is why the book has the character that it has. He's writing to people who are very familiar with the Old Testament system, and he's persuading them that not only is the Old Testament system fading away, but the Old Testament system all along was pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. And let's see how he does that at the beginning of his letter. As I mentioned first in verses 1 and 2, you have a comparison with Christ. Notice there's two things in every comparison. You have to have something that's common, and you have to have something that's different. You know, we recognize this when we say that you can't compare apples to oranges because apples and oranges don't have anything in common. If you want to judge an apple, you have to compare it to an apple. Well, likewise, the author of Hebrews opens up and says, God speaks. God spoke through the prophets. And it is that same God who now speaks in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at what he says about God speaking through the prophets or in the prophets. It says, God, who at various times and in various ways, God in parts and pieces, as it were. God spoke to the fathers in the prophets in a piecemeal fashion. He revealed the promise of a seed in Genesis 3. He revealed the promise of a son and land to Abraham. He revealed the sacrificial system to Moses. He revealed a reigning king through David. He revealed the new covenant through Jeremiah. In parts and pieces, God spoke to the fathers. Notice also it says that he spoke to the fathers. Your translation might say by the prophets and by his son. The the better translation here is that he spoke in the prophets, and he spoke in his son. You ever read the book of Isaiah or the book of Ezekiel, and the Lord tells the prophet, I want you to go naked for 60 days on the wall, or I want you to lay on one side and eat this kind of bread, or I want you to go here and break the pot, Jeremiah, and and take the loincloth, take the linen cloth and wash it in the dirty river. He tells his prophets to do all these strange things because of what the author of Hebrews is saying here. God was not just speaking through the prophets as if all we needed were words. He was speaking in the prophets themselves. The prophet through their word and life was a message from God, how the prophets lived and what they did. Now this is very important for what the author then is going to say. He has in these last days spoken to us in his son. 
not merely through the Lord Jesus Christ, but in the Lord Jesus Christ. In His person and work, God is speaking to us. Now, how can we? There's a great application to help us think through these things. You often will hear liberal Christians say things like, the sum of Christianity is the Sermon on the Mount. The, the sum of Christianity is simply doing what Jesus taught, is simply obeying the commandments of the New Testament. But what this phraseology, what this reminds us of is that God's revelation to us is not merely the teaching of the Lord Jesus, the words that he said. God's revelation to us is Jesus Christ himself, the incarnate Son of God and his person and work is God's revelation to us. And so what this means is you don't just, uh, you, you can't only believe in the words of Jesus, you have to believe in Jesus. You can't merely try to obey Christ's teachings, you have to unite to Christ himself. You have to have, as the apostles said, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And faith in the Lord Jesus Christ means that you trust yourself to him, not merely to his doctrines, not merely to his theology. This is very important for us to keep in mind as Reformed Christians, isn't it? Our temptation as Reformed Christians is to think, we need more knowledge. I need more theology. I need to read Calvin's Institutes again, and then I'll finally get over my sins. Then I'll finally get it. But what the author of Hebrews is reminding us of here, it's not more theology that you need. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. It's him in his person and in his work. And so the author makes a comparison with the prophets and with his son. And as he now goes through the rest of our passage, he he moves past this comparison and begins to talk about the Son and, and who this Son is, all for the purpose of, as he's going to say later on in the letter, all for the purpose of, now this is why you should listen to him. Who is this Son that the author is speaking about? Well, he describes his person and work in several ways. First, as God equal with the Father. He's called his Son. Look at what he says right after that at the end of verse 2. Whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. This phrase, he has appointed him heir of all things, refers to God's eternal decree. By God's eternal decree, he has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. He has foreordained the rising of the sun and the rising of the moon. He has foreordained what pair of socks you put on this morning, and he's foreordained the day of your death. Now, sometimes when we talk about God's decree, when we think about this decree of everything that's going to happen, we tend to get lost in the details, don't we? We tend, we tend to get lost in, well, did God ordain uh, the Russians to invade the Ukraine? Did, did God ordain World War II? God ordained all of these things, and we start looking at all the details, missing the centerpiece of God's decree. And the centerpiece of God's decree is that Christ should reign. 
Even before God created heaven and earth, His will was that Christ would be the heir of all things. Not only is He the heir of all things according to the decree, but He is also the creator of heaven and earth. Look at what it says. He appointed Christ the heir of all things, and through whom His Son, He also made the worlds. Now, this puts Christ, the Son, on the same level with the Father. Both of these persons are equally divine. God the Father is creating the worlds, and it's through the Son that He is creating the worlds. Turn to Colossians chapter 1, where Paul speaks about the same idea, but he uses this language in Colossians chapter 1. He uses slightly different language, but he's, he's talking about the same ideas. Colossians 1.15, Paul says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Firstborn means that he has the right of inheritance. He's the heir of all things. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. And all things were created through him, but notice this last phrase, for him. All things were created through Christ, and all things were created for Christ. And so this son that the author of Hebrews is bringing before our attention is not merely the son of the father. He's not merely the Jesus who loves your soul. He's not merely the sympathetic Savior who had mercy on you in your sins, but He is also the Lord of all creation. He is the answer to every question. He is the reason for everything that happens. The Lord Jesus Christ is Lord in every sense of that word. Why does springtime come around at the end of March? Because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why does summertime come around later on? Because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why is Joe Biden sitting in the presidency right now? Because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why do you have the hair color that you have? Because of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has created all things and all things are for him. He is the purpose of everything. Now I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, because we live in a purposeless age. We live in an age that has no direction and no aim and is simply wandering in the darkness, groping for something to lay hold of. What the author of Hebrews is reminding us of is that the Jesus you pray to, the Jesus that you trust in, the Jesus whom we were just praising during this worship service, is the answer to the question. He is the reason for everything. Now I want to be careful because that can often be misunderstood. We can sometimes take that and say just slap Jesus on it and it makes it better. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying and what the author of Hebrews is saying is that according to God's decree he has appointed Christ the heir of everything and so everything that God is doing will ultimately find its realization in the manifestation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And those who are united to Christ will partake of that joy and that glory. 
but you have to wait for it. You have to endure. As Paul says in another letter, eye has not seen and ear has not heard the things that God has prepared for those that love him. A lot of the intermediate steps from your sickness to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, we can't discern. But by faith, we know it will find its resolution in him. And so Christ is the one through whom he has made the world. But this Christ is not merely God equal with the Father. He is also the incarnate mediator. Now in verse 3, he begins to talk more about the person and work of Christ. Look at what he says in verse 3. This Son is the brightness of the Father's glory. This is a a very pungent and powerful phrase that the author of Hebrews uses. And maybe we can illustrate it this way. You see out the window that the sun is shining. And the sun is shedding its light upon us. And as we go about our day, we're warmed by the light of the sun. In the light of the sun, we're able to see everything that's around us. But as we, if we turn our gaze up to the sun directly, we experience the sun's brightness. We experience the power of the light of the sun, and it overwhelms our eyes. You will go blind if you stare at the sun, because it is so bright that we cannot handle it. And so we have the light of the sun, but then we also have the brightness of the light of the sun. It's the same. It's a part of the sun. It's equal with the sun. But the brightness is what comes near to us and impresses upon us what the sun is really like. Well, likewise, with God the Father and God the Son. God the Father is, as it were, the Son shedding light upon all creation. And God the Son incarnate as our mediator, is the brightness of the glory of God. It is in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ that God's glory shines upon you and pierces you through the Lord Jesus Christ and in his incarnate work. Notice that the author is talking about the incarnate Christ. Keep reading. He's the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person. In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. And then he made man after his own image. But man, after he had been created, sinned. And the image of God was tainted in man. Adam was supposed to be the image of God on earth. But Adam sinned. And God, in his mercy, has sent us a second Adam. Has sent us another man. Another man who perfectly displays for us the person of God. That's what the author of Hebrews means. He is the express image of God the Father. And this is a description of the incarnate Christ. Notice that it says it's express. It's impressed upon us. It's like a a signet ring that kings used to wear. When they would send a letter, they would put wax on the letter. And they would seal it with their ring, pressing into the wax and leaving the image of their ring. So what the author of Hebrews is saying is that God the Father, in the person of his incarnate Son, has left an impression upon humanity of what he is like in the incarnate Son. But keep reading. 
He's the express image of his person. But being the incarnate son, he does not lose any of his divinity. Look what he says. And upholding all things by the word of his power. So when the son of God was incarnate, he is the brightness of the father's glory, the express image of his person, walking on the dusty road to Jerusalem, being crucified and spat upon, and yet at the same time, upholding everything by the word of his power. Upholding everything as the creator God. Sustaining even the the Jews that were cursing him on the cross, he was upholding them by the word of his power. There is a reason theologians have called the incarnation the greatest miracle that God ever performed. Because of the wonder and the mystery that God Almighty could take on human flesh and become one of us while at the same time remaining God Almighty. That's what the author of Hebrews is describing here. Now, this is very important to pay attention to, especially in the comparison that he begins with. Remember, that's what the author is doing. He's contrasting the prophets with the Son. In the prophets, they were mere men upon whom the Holy Spirit would come, upon whom the Holy Spirit would work, but then the Spirit would depart, and they were just like other men. What the author is telling us about the Lord Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God, is that you don't have a mere man coming to you. You have God Almighty in flesh coming to you. But that's not all. You see, the incarnation had a purpose. The the incarnation was done for a reason. And that's what the author now moves to here. He is upholding all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is a description, this last phrase that we just looked at, it's a description of what many will call the cross and the crown. You see, the incarnate Messiah came to die. He is the heir of all things. He is the appointed Lord of all creation. But in order for him to obtain his kingdom, in order for him to take possession of his city, as we read in Isaiah 62, the city that will not be forsaken, in order for him to take possession of heavenly Jerusalem, he had to save it from their sins. He had to defeat their enemy. He had to engage in a conflict with the one thing that kept us separate from God, and that is our sins. And so the author speaks about him purging our sins, and he has now sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. After the cross comes the crown. After the suffering comes glory. As we read in Psalm 126, after the tears comes joy. After the weeping comes rejoicing. Likewise for the Lord Jesus Christ. After his cross came his throne. And so he's now seated on the right hand of the majesty on high. Again, keep in mind the comparison that the author is drawing here. Look at what he says. This incarnate son 
by himself purged our sins. Now, this comparison is going to be developed throughout the rest of the letter, but I just want to give you a preview right now. Think about the Old Testament system. Aaron and his sons were appointed to purge the sins of the people. But how did they do it? They purged the sins of the people by the blood of another. They purged the sins of the people through the blood of bulls and goats. What the author of Hebrews is telling us here is that not only is this one the eternal God, not only is he the incarnate uh, prophet greater than the prophets of the Old Testament, but he is also the great priest who offers not the blood of bulls and goats, but the blood of himself to purge you from your sins. He offers himself on your behalf to be cleansed. And then finally, he describes the condition the condition of Christ in verse 4. He sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Now this verse is a description of the condition that Christ occupies right now. Notice that it's parallel to him sitting upon the throne. What, what the author is saying is that Christ is able to sit upon the throne because he has obtained this excellent name. And this excellent name is a name that is greater than the angels. A couple of things to keep in mind. First, remember who the author is writing to. He's writing to believing Jews. It was a Jewish belief at this time, justified by many places of Scripture, that one of the glories of the Mosaic Covenant was that the law was given to the nation through angels. Angels were a part of the ministry of Moses. And there was this angelic host surrounding God's presence when he gave the law to the people. You see the first example of this when Jacob wrestles the angel. Before he wrestled that one angel, he says uh, he, he came upon a camp. In Genesis 32, he came upon a camp of angels. And he saw this great multitude of angels, and then he wrestles the one angel. That's a theme that runs throughout the Old Testament. So what the author is trying to get the Hebrews to see is that, yes, angels are glorious. Christ is more so. Angels are magnificent. Christ is more so. Angels are excellent. But this Christ is more excellent. The second thing to notice about this excellent name that Christ has obtained is a fulfillment of the promise made to David. When God made the covenant with David, he promised him, you'll have a son from your own body that will rule, and I will make him a great name, a name along with the names of the great ones of the earth, 2 Samuel chapter 7. So when the author says he's obtained a much more excellent name, he's speaking about his royal kingly dignity. He's speaking about his fulfillment as the true king, the son of David, glorious in praises, and this is the condition of Christ right now. 
This is what Christ is doing currently. He is ruling and reigning over all things for the good of his church. Now, I'll give you a little bit of a preview. Turn to chapter 2, verse 1. The author of Hebrews is going to spend a little bit more time talking about angels, but once he's done with that, he will say, Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And what is the greatness of this salvation? That God's own Son took on flesh, died for you, rules and reigns over everything for you. Do not neglect what God is saying to you through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in him. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would be merciful to us and help us to give diligent heed to the things you have revealed to us in the person and work of the Lord Jesus. And we pray that in doing all of this, you would be glorified. And we ask this all for Jesus' sake. Amen.